Survival Podcast. It's a Thursday, Just Jack show, and today we're going to be talking about gardening, but really more the things to grow, or specifically the things that I'm going to grow this year. Uh, this isn't everything I'm going to grow, but this is most of what I'm growing. This is a couple things that got left out because I got 25 items here. But what I want to come off with today, right from the beginning, is these. it's not like I went out and did my annual addiction uh, of looking through seed catalogs and ordered 25 brand new things. Of all the things here, there's three that are new trials. The other 22 are things that have become staples for me on my property and with my gardening. And uh, I, I am coming at this today from the standpoint of, Here's all different ideas for things you can try. And these are all things that grow for me where I'm at. And I live in a really harsh climate on a really harsh property, of, as many of you guys know. And um, if it'll grow here, it'll probably grow where you are. But the real thing I'm trying to do is make a case for you to develop your own personal staple crops. Because if you do that, you'll get very good at growing those things. In time, you'll figure out the stuff that's easy, the stuff you like, and the stuff you can't just get anywhere else, right? And that's the beauty of it. But you'll also have things that are tried and true for you. So, for instance, one of the things I'll talk about today is, you know, you guys are calling it my tactical assault squash back there, right, if you're watching the video. And, you know, it has become very tried and true for me in that, it is possible for me to grow this stuff without being completely plagued uh, by the horrible uh, nightmare of squash vine borers that we talked about with our guests yesterday, uh, because there's not much of a vine for them to bore into. It's thick and dense. Does that mean it's the best thing for you to grow? If you primarily want to grow a summer squash and you live somewhere where you're not completely plagued by the evil that is the squash vine borer, Honestly, something like a blackbush zucchini would probably be way more productive for you for the, the summer type squash versus I mainly grow what I do for winter. So you find what works for you. And if you grow something year after year after year, I, I really hope um, I, I really hope that you wouldn't grow something you didn't like just because it did well. So like I can grow the hell out of cherry bell radishes, and I have no desire to grow cherry bell radishes. Um, I have tried them cooked like potatoes in stews and stuff as a carnivore alternative or a ketivore alternative to potato, and they're I'll give I'll grant it it's they're they're okay that way. There's things I'd rather have though, so I don't grow them because I don't like them. So you're going to end up with tried and true and growing what you like, and you and your family eat it, and you can also develop. Food storage plans and timelines by having staple crops that you grow all the time. And, and what's beautiful about that is we, we want to produce beyond our daily eating habits with a garden. We want to have, by the end of the gardening season, some food put away. And so it's, it, it's, it's great that you kind of, be, when you get used to doing this, 
and you say like, these are my staples. And that means we're going to plant more than one or two plants of them. And then we're going to get a harvest that's kind of, you know, this particular thing will be harvestable at this particular time that we can come up with a food storage strategy that lets us put away little bits of food across the whole season versus more like what my grandmother did. My grandmother basically, we did some stuff that was really continuous harvest like beans and stuff. And she would at any given point, maybe put a bunch of beans by either can them or flash freeze them. But we did like, it was like the end of August into September when we started dove hunting would be when she would just be every day canning every day, putting food back. And it was kind of an end of season type thing. I, I find it much more enjoyable personally to do a little bit week by week throughout the whole season. And then by the end of the season, you're just done. And so by having these staples, I think it makes it easier to do that. Um, and then I still want you to try new stuff, right? So I want you to, I want you to over time, I'm hoping you'll develop your own list like this of these tried and true proven things. But you get there if you're going to get there with some of the unique stuff you're going to hear me talk about today because you're willing to be a little bit adventurous and grow two or three things every year that you never did before. Give them a chance. See if you like them and then, you know, implement them at a higher level. So everything that I talk about today, I'm looking at my list here. I don't think any of this wasn't something that I at some point tried. Well, obviously the first time, but I mean, Swiss chards on my list. That one goes back to when I was a kid. Otherwise, most of this stuff that become true, you know, kind of time tested things that we love to grow and we love to eat was something like we found in a catalog. Well, we'll try that and we'll try this. And for every one that became a staple, three or four were like, eh, it wasn't really worth it. Maybe it wasn't a bad thing to eat or whatever, but it wasn't that productive. It was too finicky. It didn't like our climate. It decided it would rather be dead than grow here. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons for failure. And that's why, you know, if you start to build your staples out and then you try two or three things a year, and if you get one home run out of that two, three, four trial and you add that next year, you really build up your own list like this. And maybe this will help you guys start off your list because well, I'm going to start going through some of my stuff. Um, but, yeah, be adventurous. And you know, the final thing is you don't know what you don't know. So one of the things on my list this year is, is a python snake bean or Indian snake bean, it's also called. It's basically a gourd. It looks like a giant, huge bean. It has these cool little flowers on it. It is one of the best tasting things I've ever grown in a garden and then cooked and ate. And what it took to make it like the most fantastic thing that I've ever grown and freshly cooked and ate was olive oil and salt on a flat top. I made a pretty big helping of that at the uh, workshop last year after we did some work in the garden, just took some of the last bits of it and chopped it up. And people ate that like they were eating freaking I don't know, shrimp off the barbecue or something. I mean, people went crazy on it. And how was I ever going to know, unless I happened to go somewhere where somebody cooked it for me, how good that stuff was, right? Some of the other things that I found, I mean, are just amazing. And some are kind of boring, but the, the use is different. So let's start going through it. So starting off, I want to go ahead and get – screen up here for you guys that are on the video. And as I'm going through, I'm clicking links and you guys can see as I do that, 
And I have a link for where to get seed, or in one case, plants, for every single thing I'm talking about today. I want to be clear on something, though. I'm not saying buy this seed, this place. What I did is I went through, made the list first of everything I'm growing. Then I went to companies that we have our relationship with through MSB. So a lot of this stuff, like any seed, Eden Brothers, Victory Seed Company, these these smaller seed companies, we have direct relationships where our members get a discount. So obviously, if I'm talking about something and it's available from one of those folks, I want to make sure that you know that you can use that discount. I also want to kind of reward the companies that work with us. There's also a lot of stuff in here that none of the companies that do a discount with us have. So I went with Baker Creek in some examples because I have a really long-term relationship with them. And they've always provided wonderful seed. And I love their annual, you know, call it a catalog. It's more like a more like a coffee table book to sit down and look at gorgeous pictures uh, from the stuff at Baker Creek. And then there's some stuff that, you know, nobody that I really know firsthand has. So I had to go out and and I picked the places that I bought it from or where I bought it from this year or what have you. So I'm not saying to go to any of these places. I just kind of spread the love around. And what you might end up deciding is if there's like two or three things you want to get, you might want to consolidate that to a single supplier because it'll save on shipping. I do like to spread my seed business around. I don't want these companies uh, that are relatively small to go away. I want to remain able to access this incredible bank of genetics and plants. So just think about that when you're buying your stuff. So my first crop that has become an absolute staple for me is QNL peppers. I grow this way more than I do bells. They do better for me than bells and they get freaking huge. They get, you know, five, six inches long and fairly big around. And it's like growing two different peppers. First of all, with the shape in them, you might think they're a chili. They're not a, they're not a, there's no heat to them at all. When they're a light green to yellowish color, like they are in the picture that you're seeing on the screen, if you're watching the video, they have a, they're much more similar to what you would call like a banana pepper. They have a little bit of a, a sour taste, I guess you would say, but it's not sour. I don't really know how to explain it. But it's not super sweet. And they, you know, referred to a lot of times as a frying pepper. And they're very good at that stage as a frying pepper. As they mature, they go into an orange and then to a red. And they're like the sweetest bell pepper you ever ate. And if you grow them in good, healthy soil and take good care of them, they are very thick walled. So to me, they are just a better play than, you know, just about any of the bells out there for myself. And I've been growing them since I got here, and they've been kind of like a go-to standard for us. We tend to harvest most of them after they turn a brighter color and become sweet. Our primary way that we use them, we use them fresh in salads. We use them in cooking all summer long. And, you know, I talked about how if you can do your prep work slow across time, a little bit at a time, it is a, a, a nice thing to be at the end of your season and not have a ton of work in front of you. What we usually do with these guys is, is they turn red, red, orange. We pick all of them because if you leave them too long after that, then they start to get sun scald and rot and go off. Whatever we don't eat that week and there's a next crop coming in, we chop them up, finely chopped, throw them on a cookie tray, throw that in the freezer. Then once they're frozen, we put them in Ziploc bags. And that way we're building up a 
freezer storage of peppers. And the only thing you're really going to want to use them for once you've done that to them is, is to cook them. Uh, they're not going to be good fresh once you've done that. But that's pretty much what we do. Jalapenos, uh, I'm known as like the jalapeno pepper whisperer by friends that come over here. I, I grow really beautiful, large uh, jalapenos, and I get way more, I think, red peppers than most people that grow jalapenos. And it's because I've been selecting for jalapeno seed for almost 20 years. Before I started TSP, I was working with jalapenos and saving the biggest, reddest peppers every year and the ones that turn red the earliest. But here's the the not-so-secret secret to my jalapeno secret. I'm just growing jalapeno M. And that's the, you know, this is from Eden Brothers. Pretty much everybody sells these that we we work with. Uh, almost every seed house sells jalapeno M. It's one of the oldest, most trustworthy. It's kind of a medium heat jalapeno. They're not that big. They're not that red. But when you select for them over time, you get there. So if you wanted to start your own program and move in the direction of what I've done, that would be, we, we grow jalapenos and we just eat them like candy. I mean, we eat them with everything. Even my wife, who's not big on spice, what we do, we do a lot of the cheddar and bacon wrapped jalapenos. And I'm going to tell you right now, instead of growing jalapenos that have no heat and kind of being like, you know, that way it's not too hot for us to eat, but then you also don't get the the real character of a jalapeno. You don't get any heat at all. If you have somebody in your household who can't handle full heat jalapenos, and you're going to do the bacon-wrapped, cheese-stuffed jalapenos, which to me, you know, the ones that are like they stand up and they sit in a little rack and all. Heck with that. Cut them in half, seed them out, lay them flat down on a on a, a baking pan with aluminum foil, put your cheese in them, wrap them up, stick a toothpick through them, throw them in the oven, or put them on the grill. That's, that's all you got to do. But what you do for the person that can't handle the heat, get a pot of water, get the water boiling. Seed and have your peppers and take the ones for this person or for everybody if you want them all mild. Throw them in that pot of boiling water for one minute and immediately put them through a strainer and hit them with cold water and stop that cooking. This is going to do a couple things. One, they're actually going to cook quicker on the grill for you, but they're going to get, because they're kind of blanched at that point, they're actually going to get less soft. So they're going to cook easily for you, but they're going to have more consistency. But it will kill the heat. There, because the capsaicin is soluble in hot water, it will literally rinse all of the capsaicin off of them, and there'll be almost no heat whatsoever. If you go two minutes, I think it's too long, and there's nothing left as far as that jalapeno anything to me. You can go 30 seconds and just bring it down. Honestly, 10, 20 seconds makes a difference. It's that quick, and... It's why you'll notice a lot of times when you eat a fresh jalapeno, it'll blow your brains out with heat. But if you cook it at all, it tends to mellow really, really fast. And they just they, they cook off that capsaicin. So next up, this is one of my new ones this year. And I'm actually very excited uh, to grow this. This is rat red rat's tail radish. Now, Jack, you just said you don't do radishes. No, I said I don't do cherry bell, ra- cherry bell radish. I don't do plain Jake. Everybody does it uh, radish, okay? I like mild radish flavor. I don't like a heavy radish bite, 
unless it's something like a wasabi-style bite we'll talk about in a little bit. What I really like from radishes is the seed pods. And I discovered this quite by accident. When I first moved in here, I was doing everything I can to improve soil. And one of the things that I really relied on in doing that was daikon radish. And I started uh, just putting daikon everywhere. And instead of harvesting it, I let it go to seed. And it put these flowers everywhere. And then there were bees and bugs and everything all buzzing around. This is great. And I don't remember who. Somebody was over here. And said, you know, you can eat those seed pods, don't you? And I said, I did not know that. So I plucked a, you know, a young one off before it gets, you know, can they get old? They get kind of tough. And I popped it in my mouth and I ate it. And I said, but that's everything I love about a radish and nothing that I hate about one. So I started growing daikon for this. And one of the things I really love in my cooking is color. So when I, somebody turned me on to this this year. I, again, I don't remember who. Um, this is a radish that is specifically grown for its seed pods only. And so I'm going to be growing this one this year, and I have no clue if I'm really going to like it, if it's going to be about the same as daikon or not. But the beauty of this plant alone makes me want to grow it. Let me, for those of you on the video, show you some other pictures of it. And the flowers are pretty impressive as well on it. I mean, that just looks like something that I want to grow, that I want to include. Like, I would throw that in right at the end of a stir-fry. Um, probably not going to be something that you're going to do a lot of storage with, but I don't know, man. I'm looking at those pods and thinking a lacto-fermentation of that seed pod might be pretty freaking amazing, something you would put on a burger or even like a wrap or a taco or a salad fermented. So we'll see. But I am pretty excited to grow that one this year. And, uh, again, that's not one that's proven. I have no idea how well it's going to do. But I've never had any problems at all growing radishes. So I don't expect it to be a problem. I also am going to grow uh, some daikon radish this year. And I'm going to do the same thing, let them go to seed and use the seed pods. But I do actually really like daikon in a pickle or a fermented pickle. And so I will harvest some before they go to seed because the roots get a little bit pithy and really too big and start to split if you let them go to seed. So I'm going to grow uh, Japanese uh, style daikon radish. Uh, Minowanese is uh, a, a good variety. I don't really think it's that important which daikon you grow. But uh, again, I really like using fermented daikon, pickled daikon, what have you. And so we'll be doing that again this year. That is a staple that we have done over and over again. Uh, then, you know, I don't really have specific varieties for you on this, but one of the best plants that I've ever grown from a standpoint of just easy, productive, and beneficial to the soil is just beans as a whole. And so what I like to do often is I just get four or five different varieties of bush beans. I usually get some green ones and some yellow wax. And then when I do my planting, like along the front border, anywhere like a smaller plant will fit in well. I just pop in and I'll alternate. I'll do like one of these, you know, actually I do like two or three beans in each hole. And, you know, whatever comes up, you, you know, pull a few out and, and thin. And uh, maybe two plants per planting you let grow. And you do like one variety, then another variety, then another variety, then the first variety. You just kind of put them all through your garden. 
So I won't say much on that other than it's just it's because now you've got a legume fixing nitrogen. For me, being someone who doesn't eat much in the way of carbohydrates, I'm not big on like shelling beans or things like that. The younger the bean, the less developed the seed, the less carbohydrate you have, and the more it's just like a pure vegetable. So um, I like lots of beans. And I'll go ahead and I'm, before I talk about like our bean plan, how we handle, sto- you know, storing beans and what have you, I'm going to go ahead and talk about the other beans that we're also going to grow this year. So, again, sprinkled through the garden, various bush beans. Along the backs of my gardens, I have uh, cattle panels up on uh, landscape timbers that I trellis tomatoes and cucumbers and squash and things like that up. And what I do is I actually plant the vining uh, vegetables that are larger, like the tomatoes or cucumbers, a little bit further out from the back wall. And then I take uh, bamboo uh, stakes and angle it back. And I kind of channel them back and then get them onto that trellis. Right below the trellis is where I plant, you know, my beans that are climbing beans, my pole beans. And my number one go-to bean is long, uh, the Chinese red noodle long bean. And I'll tell you, the biggest reason I grow the red variety isn't because it's red and it looks cool when you cook it, because as soon as you cook it, it actually turns green. I like the red bean variety because when I end up with that trellis full of tomatoes and cucumbers and all this greenery, and then I've got the green uh, vines from the beans going up it, I miss a lot of the green beans when I grow green beans that way. I don't see them, especially when they're the the green noodle beans, the long asparagus beans. They grow like three foot long. They look like a stem, but the red pops out, so I'm quicker to harvest. That's why I chose the red variety as my go-to, because the green and the red both grow fantastically. Some stuff to know about this plant, though, and why it is really a spectacular plant uh, to, to make a staple in your garden. First of all, while it is an Asian plant, it has become an incredibly uh, utilized staple in the Caribbean islands. It has grown like crazy both for the pods and for the beans, and it makes a decent shelling bean if you want to do that. It handles heat really well. In a lot of hot climates, your beans do really, really well early in the year, and then they start getting diseases like rust and stuff as it gets really dry and really hot. These do not do that. That is a huge advantage, in my opinion, for them. Another advantage, they make use of vertical space. So I love that about them. I love anything that makes use of vertical space because I have almost as much vertical space in half of my garden anyway as I do uh, flat space in that same piece of garden by adding the trellises and the hoops and everything else. So it's like doubling my growing space without having to work really hard to do it, without having to till more soil or what have you. Uh, So I, I love that about them. I've also been told the leaves are edible, but I haven't tried it. What I really love about these long beans, though, is they will produce to maturity where you can, you know, dry them out, shell them, and save seed really, really quickly from first planting, which means if you want to start selecting the plants and the seeds that produce the best on your property, you can literally save and then replant several times in a season. So I've easily had a third to even a fourth generation in a single planting of these guys. They're also, I am big on things that I can save seed for. And since I only grow these red ones, I don't have any cross-pollination. I don't have any beans that cross-pollinate with this. 
I never have to buy one of these seeds ever again for the rest of my life. I'm 100% self-sufficient with this particular plant. So love this plant. Really recommend it highly. Everybody that I've ever talked to that's grown it um, really, really loves it. Next, I also, in the same space, I grow uh, scarlet runner beans. I grow these for a variety. I do not get anywhere near the production from them. And I think it has to do with my climate, as I do many of the other varieties of beans. So it's not like they're a super productive plant for me. But what, the ones that do well, the flowers on them, to me, are worth growing alone. They attract hummingbirds. They attract nocturnal moths. Some of the other stuff I grow needs moths. Some of the gourds and stuff that I grow require moths to pollinate it. So anything that brings in more moths is good. Um, they are, they are, according to Bill Mollison, they're the best bean that exists in the world. That's his opinion, not mine. Uh, but they do make a great uh, well, bean that you harvest as a green bean and as a shelling bean. They make a very large, almost the size of a lima bean. I'm not big on uh, beans for shelling. I'm just not my thing. But I have tried them that way, and they are, again, they're about the size of a lima. They are way better. They're, they're a good baked bean if you like to do baked beans and stuff like that. Uh, but I grow them mainly for... The fact that they attract pollinators at, at a high degree and they're just a beautiful plant. And honestly, I grew them this year and I don't know if I will even have them this year. I found some. I did not buy any new ones. I did not save seed last year. I found a packet. There was maybe two dozen seeds in it. And so I popped them in the ground. I don't know how old that packet is. I don't know if it's going to have good germination rates. But I'm growing them this year mainly because we've done it in the past. I like them, and we had some seed around, so why not go ahead and get it in the ground and see if it'll grow before it gets too old. Uh, so let me real quick before I go on to my next plant here, I want to talk to you guys uh, real quick about kind of where beans fit as a prepper from the standpoint of being able to do prep work throughout the season and be done at the end of the season versus scrambling. So there's two ways that we save beans. The primary way is flash freezing, much like we do with uh, the peppers I talked about earlier. The problem with doing beans, though, is it's not as simple of an operation as is the peppers. Peppers, you just throw them in the freezer. That's all there is to it. The only reason we lay them on a tray is so they don't freeze into a clump. So when we want to take a couple handfuls out to cook with and not defrost the bag, then we can do that. So they're not just in a big chunk lump where they you have to break them with a hammer to get apart the uh the beans though require blanching if you freeze a bean without blanching it when you take it out to cook it it will taste like a stick right which is a taste like a stick it will have the texture of a stick and you can cook it for hours and it will still have the texture of a stick something goes wrong with the enzymes when you do this so you either short-term boil or steam it and then freeze it so we have a two level electric steamer you just throw water in the bottom and you put two baskets on it and it'll steam two baskets and so whenever we have extra beans we don't care and we don't care if which varieties they are they're beans you fill the two steamer baskets up we run the steamer i think it's like seven or eight minutes whatever the blanching table says when it's done i get a couple of the uh, baking trays like a half sheet tray Spread them out on a single layer, just like the peppers, into the freezer that they go. When they're frozen solid, you put them in bags. And that way, again, you can go in and you're like, I want to use two or three different vegetables in a stir fry. 
you open your freezer, you pop your bag open, handful of this, handful of that, put them back away, push the air out, seal them up, done. And so it's a very comfortable thing to do. The other thing we do with them, we don't do a lot of this every year, but we do a couple jars worth is dehydrated. And when I do dehydrated beans, same thing, though, we have to blanch. Then they go in the Excalibur, they get dehydrated, they go into glass jars sealed up with a uh, with an O2 absorber inside them. And I I really enjoy that. I know people like to do pickled beans, dilly beans, canned beans, stuff like that. that not me. I don't eat enough beans to justify that amount of work. Most of our beans, I like to do a lot of daily harvest. I try to be a hunter-gatherer in, in, in my growing uh, season especially. Once stuff starts becoming regularly harvestable, what we're eating tonight as a side dish is whatever was easiest to pick and ready in the garden. So I might go through the garden, grab an eggplant, a handful of beans, and a young zucchini squash or something. And that's how we that's how we use them mainly. And because they're a continuous harvest type of uh, crop, and this is the trick with beans, guys. Believe it or not, the more you harvest it, the more you'll get. When you harvest them, they, it triggers them to start producing that next round of crops. Now, next up is, is I have two eggplants I grow. This one is called Ping Tongue. I think it is one of the most beautiful things that comes out of the garden. The color of this eggplant, this purpley pink with a little bit of white, it just looks like something that belongs on a high-end table. It's, it's, it's a beautiful plant. Those of you that are watching the video can see it. And there's a lot of advantages to this plant. I will also say this is a plant, the first time I grew it was about four years ago. I have never really been huge on eggplant because to, most of my life, to me, eggplant is the big giant thing that you make uh, eggplant parmesan out of. And there's work to making that eggplant edible. Those big eggplants, they really need to be salted and, and, and sweated out, and then they don't taste like ass anymore. And then you could do something with them. I love things like baba ganoush and all, but without bread, really, you know. So that's something that I'll have when we go to a Turkish restaurant twice a year. So there was not a big incentive for me to grow eggplant. Somebody told me again, I wish I could credit, you know, give this a try. It's sweet. It's delicious. It's low carb. It tastes like whatever you cook it in. If you want flavor, you know, in it, it will absorb like a sponge. It is incredibly productive. It dehydrates well. I've never tried freezing it, but it dehydrates well. If you dehydrate it, all you have to do is chop it up, throw it in the dehydrator, dehydrate it. And the, the, the simple rule to having it be good when you cook with it, whatever you're cooking, make sure there's enough liquid in it to rehydrate your, your eggplant. And at the very end, I mean, you've turned off the heat. You throw your eggplant and you mix it in and you just let it reconstitute from the hot liquid. And it will taste almost as good as fresh. The big thing of this, though, is its productivity is stupid. You have this little plant that's about two foot tall. And you pull the leaves up and look under it. And it's just got you know 10 to 20 of these things at various stages of maturity hanging off of it. You can almost, you know, like have to stake the plant up so it doesn't weigh itself down. So super productive, but had I not tried it, I wouldn't know. And this is one of those plants, you know, I'm, when I go out to the garden and there's a couple available, we're eating that night, we're going to have this as a side dish, you know, next to a steak or some chicken or something like that. And I just gave you my storage mechanism with it, which is when we have too much, 
chop it, slice it. And what's beautiful about it is since they're long and they're kind of the same size all the way through, if I have 20 of them I want to put in the dehydrator, it's 10 seconds with a food processor. You set the depth of the chop and, and done. And so this is one of our real go-to plants. It's also, um, I think it originated as a hybrid, but it is stable, so you can save seed for, for it. So this is another plant that I never have to grow seed for again. The next one is my other eggplant. So once I had an eggplant that didn't taste like butt, I'm like, well, maybe maybe I should give some other eggplants a try. Most of them have been similar to the ping tongue, and they've not been better. So I'm like, I only need one. If it's going to be the same, I might as well stick to the one that that, that, that I brought to the dance, right? And it, it's been great. Last year, I tried these uh, Rosa de Rotunda, which means basically red red and round uh, eggplant. And they're more of an orange than a red. The promise was that this would taste like tomato, pepper, and eggplant together if I you know, cooked it, sauteed it, whatever. The promise was lived up to. This is exactly what it tastes like. They're not very big. A, a, a large one is about as big as your fist. There's nothing special you have to do to clean them and cook with them. They definitely have kind of a sweet flavor, but they do have kind of like, if you just chop a bunch of them up and saute them, you kind of feel like somebody put some peppers and tomatoes in with them. And pepper, tomato, and eggplant is a great melange to make anyway. They're all, of course, members of the nightshade family. Um, but I, I love these guys. I didn't grow enough of them yes, last year to even mess around uh, with, you know, a storage plan for them. So I really don't know. This year I'm growing a lot more plants. So I expect to find if they are a good fit for dehydration like their cousin, the uh, pink tongue. Next up, fennel. Fennel is, I mean, one of my absolute favorite crops in the world. There's, there is something about fresh fennel, like roasted fennel, grilled fennel, sautéed, I don't care. It, and and I, I found that even people that are not, you know, it has like that aniseed licorice thing going on. And people who don't really care for licorice tend to still like fennel. And when it's raw, it has a much more assertive of that kind of licorice anise thing going on. When you cook it, it gets very mild, I guess would be the term for it. I grow Florence, and it's because I've tried a couple different varieties of fennel. Florence, as long as you make sure that it's not cross-pollinating with, with dill, you let a couple mature, you get great seed. So you got seed forever. And you don't need a lot of seed um, to grow a lot of fennel. I mean, it's a tiny little seed. It also is a dual-purpose plant to me in that we have we take a lot of the fronds off of it and use it before we harvest the plant. The other thing that we did last year, and I'm going to try this again and play with it, we didn't harvest all of it. We let some go to seed. And what ended up happening is it literally made like sister bulbs around it. And we ended up with a harvest of small bulbs that was equal to like the, the three or four small bulbs that formed off the mother plant were about equal to if we had harvested the mother at full size. You might wonder, well, why, why would you want to do that? You wait long to get the same thing. Well, one, you know, that, that fennel grew all through the summer. And if you, if you wanted a fall crop of fennel, that's kind of difficult because you have to start it in our heat. 
So fennel's been kind of an early season crop for us. So that gave us something we could harvest late in the season. But the other thing it did is the black swallowtail butterflies around here are amazing. And the way I feel about those guys, they eat the hell out of this. They can have all of it they want. I can just plant more. And what will happen is you'll start to see kind of like, oh, that plant's getting eaten by something. You go, and it'll just be covered in the, butter, uh, the caterpillars for the black swallowtails. And so I plant it also as kind of a habit uh, habitat thing. Uh, and uh, some, are, uh, some quacks is uh, fennel sausage. That's really more of the seed thing, and I don't really grow enough to, uh, to produce enough of my own seed uh, to use the seed that way. I tend to use fennel seed by buying fennel seed. But, yeah, you can definitely do that. And I would bet fennel itself sliced into a sausage would be really good. That would be an interesting thing to try. I'm going to try that this year. So fennel, again, one of my favorite crops, delicious. It's, and, you know, it says right here, hardy to 20 degrees. So this is a, a great plant that you can grow into your winter or grow out in your early spring. Uh, and it, it's, it's really good one done that way. I do not have a really great way to preserve fennel. I've never tried pickling it. That might be interesting because I like pickled celery. Huh. Like lacto-fermented celery is pretty good. I bet lacto-fermented fennel, I'll have to give that a shot. Next up is lettuce leaf basil. This was something I found a couple years ago. I love this crop. Let me tell you why I love it. It's basil with a big leaf. Okay. <laughs> but you know what else it is? It is the ultimate leaf wrap for like making like a, a, a leaf wrap or a leaf roll with something. So one of the things I've done with this is I took a couple big nasturtium leaves and a couple of these and like made like a, like a taco roll thing. And I did some sauteed and butter and garlic escargot snails and wrapped it up in that. Oh my God. But pretty much anything you want to wrap up, you end up with a lettuce leaf. That's I'm sorry, a, a basil leaf that tastes a lot like your Genovese sweet, sweet basil a little bit more mild, about the size of your hand. And so you end up with this, this great carrier for just about anything. And then it, it tastes like regular basil at the same time. So anything you would use basil for, pestos and whatnot, awesome. If you guys are like, you know, Jack, you're a jerk, man. Um, because of you, I went carnivore. And, you know, the one thing I miss is pesto because the pesto goes on pasta. And, you know, what am I supposed to do now, jerk? Because I, I, I grow basil. I've actually gotten this email, and I'm like, chicken, bro, cut up some thigh meat, or, you know, if you like dark meat, I prefer dark meat chicken, or even breast, good saute, make your freaking pesto, toss the chicken in the pesto. You won't miss the carbs, right? Chicken pesto is freaking amazing, and it was something I had to come up with because I love pesto and I love basil. The other thing I like is to make um, basically like it's called bruschetta or bruschetta, depending on who you ask. Uh, and I make that for my son. And that's tomatoes and some peppers and a little bit of uh, balsamic vinegar, a little bit of olive oil, some garlic and basil. It's basically Italian pico di gallo. Instead of hot peppers, you use sweet. Uh, and instead of uh, coriander or cilantro, you use basil. And it is absolutely delicious. My son loves it, so I like to make that a few uh, years. Stuff your basil leaves like ravioli with, hmm, from Renegade Butcher. I think that would be an interesting thing. 
you know, maybe do more of a steam than like you do it normally with ravioli or something like a steam basket. Uh, you know, be, I, I'm getting some ideas and I need to not go off on that track. I'm getting some ideas about what to do with that. Thanks for putting that in my head. Next is the infamous Python snake bean uh, that I discovered last year that I said was so freaking delicious. And it is. It's the plant that's in the thumbnail for the video uh, of this episode. And it is one of the best damn things I've ever eaten. It, it really is. This plant, when it's raw, it's completely edible raw. It tastes like cucumber and green bean, but it it leans to the cucumber. When you cook it, it tastes like cucumber and green bean, but it leans to the green bean. But it's better than either in both ways. It is absolutely delicious. And what's crazy to me about this particular um, plant is it is basically a gourd. They call it snake bean because it's shaped like a bean. It's long and it's you know relatively narrow versus its length. So it's a giant bean. Most edible gourds, when they get big, they get pithy and they get nasty and you don't want to eat them anymore. These things, I let them mature too late. They started to turn orange and they got mushy where they were orange because I wanted them on the vine when my students got here for the workshop last year. So I left quite a bit of them on there and probably lost like half of the edible portion because once it turns orange, it's it's mushy. Even those, the part that didn't turn orange was delicious. And the seeds are wrapped in a red pulp, and you can pop the seeds out with your fingers, and that red pulp can be used like tomato paste. And it tastes sort of like tomato paste. It's, it will work in any recipe that you would use tomato paste in, but it will taste different. It doesn't taste just like tomato paste. It would be an ersat for tomato paste. So you've got another purpose there. One of the things I will tell you, well, two things I'll tell you about this, this crop. One, it is pollinated by moths. I did not get good production until late in the season last year because the drought was so bad. We didn't have many of the moths to do the pollinating. It is a very tiny um, flower. The flower is not that small, but the, where the stamen and the pistil are, it's very, very tiny. And it's not something that a bee is really going to effectively pollinate. So, and I'm not sure how hard manual pollination would be for these things. Again, this is a very tiny flower. So, uh, I even tried a little bit of that to see if well, that's why I wasn't getting production. When the rains came in like late August last year, and all of a sudden I started seeing the moths around, all of a sudden, boom, huge crop. So, that's an important thing to note. The other thing is the germination rate on this particular plant is considered terrible. And it is, but it doesn't have to be. When you pop that seed out of that little, and it looks like some kind of something like an alien like world, like if you needed a prop for like you found this weird thing growing on an alien planet, it looks like little freaking body snatchers in there or something that have cocooned these, these seeds. When you pop that seed out, like many gourds, it has a very waxy, hard shell. And you understand these plants come from... Uh, areas, no, uh, Art by Lee Murphy says, this looks like the same as the Armenian long cucumber melon I mentioned earlier. Nope. These are not even close to the same plant, not even close to the same plant. This is 
way back on the uh, agricultural tree of humanity. Uh, this is an ancient, ancient crop from parts of Africa and Asia. There's different varieties of it. It's not an Armenian cucumber or snake melon. Anyway, um, that hard waxy cover is because these plants live in environments where it's you know native. It doesn't ever freeze. And they need to germinate at the right time without temperature influencing it. So they have a very tough seed that requires an awful lot of moisture. In other words, they will tend to sit and not germinate until the rains come. In most tropical climates, you have a rain and a dry season. So they'll dry up. They form this protective layer, and it takes a ton of moisture. And then, of course, the plant makes a bunch of seeds, so only one per uh, fruit needs to grow and you have way more plants next year than the year before. So survival strategy. How do you how do you correct for this in your garden where you buy this seed and it's kind of expensive if you don't already have some to save? All you do is take like some emery cloth or some really fine grit sandpaper like 240 and just scuff both sides of the seeds. Just a little scratch. Throw them in a jar, cover them with room temperature water leave them sit overnight and then plant them. It will, and then keep the soil really moist in those pots or in where you plant them direct. So until they, 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 uh, they germinate and it still may take a significant period of time for them to germinate. Soaking them will also help with another problem. This plant can have when it first grows. Um, and I have links. Somebody's asking about seeds. I have links in the show notes. That's what I'm pulling up right here. Uh, links in the show notes for every single plant today. Uh, and I tried to pick a place that had them in stock and Baker Creek has them in stock right now. You can order them there right now. Yep. Five bucks a, a pack. Anyway, um, the other problem with this particular plant that gives people trouble when they're growing it and they don't have experience with it, a lot of times the plant will come up and the seed is so hard, the, the case that the, the new baby plant is stuck in it and it won't always expand and kind of break its way out. It's kind of like a chick stuck in the egg. If you soak it when it germinates, it's a lot more likely to come off. I, I always start mine indoors to get the maximum length of growing season out of these. And because they are finicky and what I will do is put three or four in a starting cup. And if they all come up, they all come up and they they actually transplant really easily as young plants. I'll pluck them out and put them in another cup. That way I can grow that one out. If they end up with that seed stuck, I'll give it a day or two and then I'll go in and I'll kind of crush it lengthwise and pull it off best as I can. Even if you take some leaf with it, that will usually save the plant. So just a little... Uh, snake bean uh, surgery 101 there, but it's a really great plant. And again, for those that say it looks like Armenian cucumber or some other plant, it is a totally unique thing onto itself. Next is cucumbers. And I have had a lot of issue growing cucumber in, in this climate. I really have. And you would think cucumbers love heat, but what we have around here is we have a lot of cucumber beetles, a very high population of them. Cucumber beetles don't eat your cucumber plant and kill it. That's not the problem. They are a sucker. They like to stick a little little straw into the leaf of the cucumber and other cucurbit plants and suck the juice out of it. It's such a small amount that it doesn't really hurt 
the plant. The plant can handle that. What the plant can't handle is something called cucumber mosaic virus. And these little beetles are well-traveled little critters. They don't just hang out in your yard. They fly away and they go to other people's places. And if they come into contact with cucumber mosaic virus, they become a carrier. Just like a tick can carry Lyme disease and it bites you. The tick bite doesn't really hurt, but the Lyme disease does. And when they come suck on your cucumber plant, they'll infect it. And then the next cucumber beetle that sucks on that leaf will then go fly to another leaf and infect it and infect all the cucumber plants. This China jade cucumber is the one that I have found that I don't even notice mosaic virus on it. I haven't even ever seen it ever happen to it. It just does phenomenal. That's why I I particularly uh, grow it. So I believe select first for survival, right? And I mean the plant survival, then select for characteristics. That's how I do my seed saving as well. The first generation that I save seed from of any plant is the plant that th- the plants that thrive the most versus the best tasting or biggest or reddest or whatever first selection for survival. So I found this same kind of thing, just kept trying cucumbers until one didn't get the mosaic virus. The other side of that is this is a delicious cucumber. There is nothing you want to do with a cucumber you can't do with this other than make maybe big giant kosher dills. Uh, it's not really a great great for making those big kosher dill pickles, but any kind of basic pickle or what have you, and I'm not big on that. Maybe I do a couple jars a year, uh, put on burgers and stuff, but we use it mostly fresh. And it's just a fan-freaking-tastic tasting cucumber. Uh, so in addition to being a really great cucumber as far as survivability, uh, and it never gets um, – like stringy or what have you. It stays sweet and it never gets bitter until it gets to the point where it starts to turn yellow because it's ready to like go to seed. It's delicious from baby to big. It's delicious. And you know, a lot of cucumbers as they get bigger, they're just not as good. Uh, next up, this will be no surprise to anybody. The tactical assault squash, right? The zucchini or uh, rampicanti or also known as the thrombone sino zucchini. Um, these are, again, this is another one of those plants that I was looking for something that would survive the vine borers. And when I found it, I also found something that I just think is a superior um, quality uh, vegetable. Uh, this is a dual purpose squash. You can grow it as a summer squash and a winter squash. You can see here it's turned orange again. I have my tactical assault uh, tromboncino right here uh, with me as well. And one of the things you'll notice is everyone in these pictures uh, on the Baker Creek website, which is where I'm at with this particular one, including this cute little girl holding it, they're all circular. They're all, you know, kind of bent and twisted. And you see mine, and mine are all this, you know, wonderfully, perfectly straight, long neck on them. How do you get this? I bet somebody in the, uh, in the chat can explain exactly how you get this perfectly straight. And it's there's no magic. You you trellis, you trellis this plant, and when it produces the squash, they hang like this. And because they're hanging, you get a straight neck. I'm not doing that because I want to sell these, and I think they look cooler like this. They probably actually look cooler all gnarled and, and bented. 
I like this because you cut this neck off right at the at the bulb of the of the squash. And then there are no seeds in here. This is solid squash meat all the way down it. Okay. So you want to make discs? You want to throw this in a food processor? Straight. Boom. Done. Uh, we make lasagna with this. We make lasagna with it when it's green and it's a um, summer squash. They'll get this big and then they turn orange. <clears throat> so it's not like once they start turning orange, they keep growing. So if you want one that's this big and you want it green, you just pick it before it starts to turn orange. And you can pick it at any point or time along the way. So the fact that we can just put that through a food processor and it's easy to process is wonderful. When it turns that orange color, that squash has been sitting against that wall back there and been in videos since the fall of last year. Here I sit on March, uh, March 30th, 2023. That was picked somewhere around the 1st of November last year. So November, December, January, February, March. It's five months old. I have done nothing to that that squash except leave it sit there. Many of you guys have watched that thing sit there. So you know I'm not making it up. So what's our storage plan? Cool, dry, place, done, finished. I will tell you this. It is better that they sit kind of like this where they're not laying flat on the surface they will start to go bad a lot faster if they're laying flat on something. So stacked like that up against something is kind of the best practice as what to do with them. I don't think they store as well as a butternut, but they store almost as good and they are way more flexible in what you can do with them. I will grow that plant forever. Here's another new one. This might be another one that somebody thinks is an Armenian cucumber or something. No, and it's called a squash, Kakuza squash. The Kakuza squash is not a squash. It is another plant that is actually a gourd, and it's in the same family as the long-handled dipper gourds that they, you know, you grow just as that. But it's used as a squash, and it's one of the first plants used like this that grown in Italy. It's it's native to the Mediterranean region. Uh in and around Italy and other nations around are like Greece and what have you. This is not something like the snake bean where it can grow um, really, really large and remain very palatable. It will get pithy when it gets too big. The only reason I'm growing it this year is I did a show recently where I talked about the trombuchino we just talked about. And somebody said that looks like Kakuza squash. It looks like the same thing. And I'm like, I have no idea if they call this Kakuza somewhere. So I looked up Kakuza and I found this plant. It's a gourd. It's used like a squash. It's low in carbohydrates. It has little thin uh, vines. It's not going to be something vine borers are going to be able to, to hammer. And I've grown other gourds in the same family with success. So I thought the hell with it. We'll give it a try and see how it turns out. I think it might be another uh, good one for making like a zucchini type lasagna out of nice and straight through the food processor. Uh, done and done. I don't expect it'll be something we'll store uh, very much. Next up, here's another new one for this year. Sickle squash. And that's that's spelled for those not watching the video. S-I-K-I-L. Sickle zucchini. If you remember the um, the episode I did recently. God, I can't remember her name now. Um, but I did a show recently with a gal out of Florida. And she sells seeds, too. I don't have her link here because she doesn't have any of this in stock. 
Uh, but she told me about them. I just can't think of her name right now, but uh, I'll have her website up in a minute for another plant that I got from her too. And uh, maybe that'll jog my memory. But this is a tropical zucchini alternative, and rare is true. A lot of times when people put rare on a website, you know, there's no policing over that. But these were actually hard to get seed from. This place, Cody Cove, as of right now, has three packs in stock. I imagine I will probably not finish the live before those three packs are claimed because some of you guys watching are going to go buy this. If you want it, get it while you can. I was able to get some from, and I, I can't believe I can't remember her name now. She sent me some that she personally had, didn't have for sale. And another member of this audience found some for sale, bought it, and, and kept half and sent me half the seed. So I've got about five of these growing right now, and I've got a little bit of reserve seed. We'll see how it does. I don't know how they'll do with the vine bores, but it looks like it has a pretty you know, thin vine. Um, they look kind of like a calabash, and I think they are a variety of calabash. Um, I'm going to try them. I'm going to see. I don't have any more information than I gave you right there other than these do really well in hotter, tropical, wetter climates. So we'll see how they do for me. The seeds in them are huge. They are massive seeds, and apparently they, that is, they're a dual-purpose crop. That, that seed is actually highly prized in them. So I, that's just one I'm going to try. That'll be, you know, next year it'll either be added to the staple list or it won't, right? That's, that's how that's going to work. Tomatoes I'm going to go quick with, and then I'll talk about tomatoes in general uh, with the three varieties, though. The, the, the tomato that has done the absolute best for me, uh, and ironic, I guess, in some ways, the Texas wild cherry tomato. So I have found this from several different places. There is a variety called Matt's Wild Cherry that I've also grown. It is similar, but I will tell you it's not the same plant because I figured in the beginning that's probably somebody renamed Matt's Wild Cherry in a Texas Wild Cherry. Nope. The story is that these were found growing in a little clump in, in Texas somewhere in South Texas. And they were harvested from that, and then they were distributed, and then people started growing them and saving seed. And that's a story. Sometimes stories are true. Sometimes they're made up to sell a plant. What I can tell you is these do freaking phenomenal for me. They, they do not have a problem with blight. They grow right through. And that, that has to do with me using aspirin now. Um, but they did well before I knew that trick. They would still get some blight, but they survived. So they're very blight resistant. They're a very small tomato. Um, very delicious, though. The definite like a wild tomato flavor kind of my go-to hybrid tomato that i grow that's available everywhere this particular picture is at victory seeds the super sweet 100 f1 tomato these are slightly bigger than the texas wild tomatoes these are a cherry tomato i would say that the wild cherry tomatoes are more of a current size like somewhere between a current and a grape versus a, a true cherry tomato that's a little bit bigger these do fantastic for me as well. What I have found with the Super Sweet 100s is if I can keep them till the end of the season, at the end of the season, if they have clusters that are all green, I can just cut that whole cl cluster off, bring it inside the house, and it'll ripen. Um, in the summer, a lot of times, I, I will actually take and harvest certain clumps of them 
when they're green, not fully red, and just set them on the, the soil next to the plant, and they'll ripen in a couple of days once you do that. So if you want more, faster ripening, you can actually trigger them to ripen by cutting the whole cluster off. These are very resistant to nematodes, uh, forsium, and uh, some other wilts, right? So just a great crop overall. I think this would probably do well for any and uber freaking productive, massively productive. Now, here's my new one, the Urban Harvest. So that is the gal that I'm talking about. Let's see if I can get her name because I feel terrible that I don't remember her name. Uh, her contact doesn't. Elsie Pickett, right? Elsie Pickett. That's 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 the gal that I had on. Her our, her interview was great. I did buy these from her, and I bought a few other things from her. This is the one that I featured, though. Uh, she's got a great little shop. The Everglades tomato was a similar story. Found growing wild in the southern Florida area near the Everglades. Very resistant to nematodes, pest, heat-tolerant type tomato. Small. Can't tell you what it tastes like. Never ate one yet, so I don't know right now. Real quick on the tomatoes. So you notice that all the tomatoes that I grow, all the tomatoes that I grow are um, cherry tomatoes, small tomatoes. And I do that because we have a lot of like, we'll get the split issues with our tomatoes and what have you. And there's ways around that. But I've just found that I just get better results and less problems with small fruit tomatoes. So that's all that I grow. I also like to grow a couple different varieties, and I like to do that so that I can use them together because they have different flavors. And so the the wild cherry, Texas wild cherry, and the sweet 100 kind of really go well together. And I am going to grow some other tomatoes, indigo rose uh, cherry tomato and some other stuff, but these are my three that I really rely on that I get a lot of production from. My main method of storage for tomatoes is not canning like it is for so many other people. It is uh, dehydration. Uh, I just cut them in half and throw them in Excalibur. And, you know, there is a you can get a ton of tomatoes into a quart jar when you dehydrate them. Uh, and they're just uh, fantastic for cooking with, et cetera. Um, I've never been big on kind of the sun dried tomatoes and oil thing that a lot of people like to do. I'm pretty sure that'd be pretty easy to do uh, for yourself, though, if you wanted to. Just dehydration. And we use them fresh all through the summer as well. And and they're just fantastic for that. And one of my favorite things, again, eggplant, tomato, pepper, saute. Just fantastic. Uh, Mennonite sorghum is something I've, I've mentioned a few times. Uh, this is what it looks like. It actually, when it's taken off the plant, looks a lot more white uh, as the grains go. Mennonite is a sorghum that is a true dual-purpose sorghum. It is grown both for the syrup that it produces or the, the sap that it produces. It can be boiled down to syrup, just squeezed out of the cane, and, and the, the grain on the head. This was all I was going to grow this year because I was unable to find a source of another sorghum that I've grown in the past, white African. It's also known as giant white African sorghum or African white giant sorghum, but giant gets in there a lot. And that's because the, the stalks on this thing will get 9 foot, 10 foot tall. I actually found some seeds, so I'm going to go ahead and buy it. I'm going to plant half white African and half the Mennonite. I've grown both of them here on my property before. And you guys are like, well, Jack, you're so heavy carnivore. This is a grain, man. What are you, what are you doing uh, growing these, uh, these grains? And the reason that I'm doing this is, is a couple things. 
first and foremost, this is a, an exceptional feed crop for my ducks. My ducks love this. And one of the things that I really love, I guess I didn't put that on the screen for you guys. Let me get that up on the screen. Uh, so this is the Mennonite uh, sorghum. And then this is the white African sorghum. Unfortunately, the page with the white African sorghum doesn't have a picture of the plant. It's a pretty impressive plant. So anyway, I'm growing this stuff this year as one reason, a feed for my ducks. I want to be able to continue to increase my feed production on my own site. I don't mind buying feed, but I want to have a plan if I can't get it and cutting the bill even better. One of the beauties of sorghum as animal feed, you can take the heads off of it. You can hang them up and let them dry. You can put them in a breathable bag, like a burlap bag, and hang them in the shop. They'll stay dry and it'll store. When you want to feed birds, there's no need to do anything other than take the whole head and throw it to them. They'll take care of picking the grains off for you. They'll be better at it than you are. Something that I can feed to my animals that I don't have to do any work for. Love it. This is a hardy crop. It's it all sorghum originated initially in, in, in northeastern Africa. It is a staple grain. It's the fifth most grown grain in the world. I'm actually thinking I need to do an entire show dedicated to sorghum production. Because even though I don't eat grain, a lot of you do. And my job is not just to do the things that I like. It's to find out things that benefit you guys, right? So I will, I will do that sometimes just to figure out what works for you guys. And as a prepper crop, you have something that is a grain. It is infinitely storable. It is infinitely sustainable. It is grown in some of the harshest parts of the world. It grows well in marginal soils. It's high in minerals and nutrients, very high for a grain. Doctors during like the time around the Great Depression all used to prescribe parents to give their children a teaspoon of sorghum syrup mixed into water, hot water, and then like a like a tea to drink that because it corrected mineral and vitamin deficiencies in children at the time, which is, you know, something that we may have to worry about someday if we have, uh, you know, dangers and problems with our food supply. It can make a bread or a flour or a porridge. It can be cooked just whole, kind of like a rice. You can cook it whole that way, and it's it's actually pretty decent tasting. So if you need a grain staple, there's a lot to be said for it. This is a crop that's honestly keeping a lot of people in Africa alive because they can sustainably grow it themselves at small scale. It doesn't require any complicated equipment to process. So there are people in Africa right now with it sitting on a tarp, pounding it with a club as we are doing this podcast. Um, it also can be used as a fermentable. I just watched a, 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 an old grandma, Asian grandma, Fijian grandma is the name of the YouTube channel, making wine from sorghum. And I'm like, really? Wine? They're, the, grandma is playing fast and loose with wine as a term. Because what grandma made was sorghum moonshine. She had a pretty cool um, still set up for it. And she was, in, you know, Art by Lee Murphy says rum. And I think you could get very rummy with sorghum if you did an extraction of the sap and fermented that. I think you'd get very close to a rum-like uh, product in your, your rum shine, right? She was making it from the grain. She fermented the grain with red yeast fermented rice 
and then she put into a fermenter for 10 days. And then she put that into this very creative kind of, you know, home fabricated still that she just burned wood underneath it. And grandma made moonshine wine is what grandma made. I will try to remember to get the link for that video and add it to the show notes because I was just farting around looking. But I want to do a whole thing on sorghum for you guys because I think as a prepper crop, as a grain crop, you've got animal feed, you've got biomass, you've got a huge – I'm doing it mostly for the root system in these newer beds that are not up to speed like some of my other beds yet. Um, you've got a, you've got a, a feed for livestock. You've got, and I'm going to stop because again, I want to do a whole show dedicated to sorghum. Uh, I will probably never become a full staple crop for me other than for livestock or livestock feed, but awesome. Uh, Swiss chard. I just couldn't leave it off the list. It's one of our real staple crops. This particular page is on high mowing. I don't care what variety you grow. I've never grown any of this and not have it grow well for me. Ford Hook Giant, it, Ford Hook Giant is my kind of my go-to. Uh, I get there's pictures of me holding up, you know, Ford Hook Giant's uh, shard leaves that are bigger than my head. I also grow a lot of the red varieties. This right here, the ruby rhubarb red shard, that's kind of been my go-to. But I like all of it. I, you know, it's whatever seed I still have. I have never really been big on growing shard into the second year as a biennial and doing a lot of seed harvest from it. I probably should do it, but, um, you know, you can buy a lot of shard seed for a few bucks. Uh, easy, super easy crop. It is a great thing to be growing. Uh, let me pull that back up real quick here because I didn't have that on the larger uh, screen view uh, for you guys. Um, it is a great crop to grow in a lot of places where you would want something like a spinach and you just really can't do spinach through most of the year because of temperatures and it being uh, something that bolts easily on you. Um, in fact, I, this is the one on this list that is not something I discovered by uh, massive experimentation and playing around with books. This goes back to when I was a kid and I'm going to say 12 years old, uh, maybe 13 years old, because it was right when we were moving to Pennsylvania permanently. But I was staying with my grandparents while my parents were getting all their shit together and getting moved out of Pennsylvania. And I wanted to grow spinach. And I have always loved spinach. I was never that kid yet a forced to eat spinach. And I like raw spinach in a salad. My Aunt Kathy from the other side of the family got me hooked on that. I wanted to grow spinach. And my grandpa had me at this uh, like kind of feed and seed store. And there's old, old, two old men talking, and they're talking about how he, he doesn't understand that you can't grow spinach in the summer here, that it's, it's not going to do well. And the old man at the feeding shop said, hey, look at this stuff called Swiss chard. My grandfather looked at it like somebody flicked a booger on him, like he didn't want nothing to do with it. He had never heard of it, didn't know what it was. But this old man at the feed stop, he told me to go home and plant this. And he said, this time of year, uh, pretend it's winter and you're starting it early. Start it, keep it in a cooler location so that it doesn't get, so it'll germinate and get it off to a start and then put it into the garden. And I instantly became hooked on growing chard. And I've grown chard my whole life. You get two crops off of it, really. You get a leaf crop and a stem crop. And when I cook with chard, I will cut the leaves off and I will wilt them in at the very end like spinach 
but the stocks I'll put in, you know, the middle of a saute to get them a little bit softer. The Ford Hork, Ford Hork, Ford Hook Giant to me is a better shard for the the stems because you get very large stems and they're they're actually quite delicious. I do not have a storage plan for shard. The beauty of it is it grows well into the winter. I have even had it over winter here. The last two winters we've had some pretty extreme cold, uh, but a normal Texas winter, it'll actually grow straight through no problem and won't get killed by frost. Next up is pink Chinese celery. This is, I have had a lot of headaches getting celery seed to germinate for me. This one just works. I don't have to play around. I don't have to use a humidity dome. It just germinates for me, which is back to for survival, right? Does it grow? So I tried all these different celeries. I was really attracted to this, though, and those of you that can see that picture, it is a beautiful-looking picture. Do you notice I said it's a beautiful picture? I'm telling you it's a beautiful picture because it's never looked like that for me when I've grown it. I don't know if my climate is too hot to get that gorgeous pink color to it. I have a, a green celery, light green celery with pink tint in it is what I end up with. Um, but it is a, it's a cutting celery. It's not a bunching celery, which means you take individual stalks and you use it more as a cooking celery or a little bit in like a, uh, a salad here and there, but really not the way we use, uh, you know, you're not going to spread peanut butter on it or what have you. Uh, I guess you could if you wanted to, but, you're probably not. It's not that kind of a celery. It's, again, it's more of what you would call a cutting celery. And uh, it's it's got a good, strong celery flavor. If you can get that color in, I'd say so much the better. I think if where you are growing, if you had this product at a farmer's market, it would kill if it looked like this. Again, I just haven't been able to get it to grow like this. But in the northern climate, it may be a lot easier to grow in this color. And I just look at that and go chefs would freaking bow down to you to put that on their menu in some way. And so it's something I would recommend those of you guys that are doing market gardens and what have you uh, kind of play around with and see if you can keep that bright pink color to it. Next up, this is one of my favorite things ever. It's a stupid little plant. <laughs> it's They call them Mexican sour gherkins. They're also known as mouse melons, and that's what I call them. They look like little watermelons. And they have a cucumber flavor, but they're crispy, crunchy when you bite into them. And they have like this mild cucumber flavor. They're mostly seed and pulp. They're delicious. And they're cool. And kids love them. And they're really easy. And they're only 67 days from seed to maturity. They grow in a vine. The only thing about them is you really have to pay attention because they're easy to not see the fruit set on them and, and leave them go. But my favorite thing to do with these is to pickle them. And to pickle them fermented, yes. Pickle them quick pickle with vinegar, yes, either way. The other thing that they're good with, you take a used jar of uh, olives and put them into the olive brine and basically brine them in olive brine. And when you do that, then you put them on a skewer and they go in a Bloody Mary or they go in a martini and they're freaking cool. But they're delicious to eat out of hand. I go out and find them. I just pop them in my mouth. They're great in salads, et cetera. You get all that cucumber flavor, but you get a real crunch to them. And, uh, again, they're just cool. Highly recommend them to anybody. Now, back to radishes. I don't hate all radishes. I just hate cherry bell French-style 
gross, nasty radishes. There's good radishes. This was one I tried about two years ago. And it was one of those things that you try. They're called wasabi radishes, the green, you know, that sells that they're more wasabi-like. And when you try one, you're like, well, when you hear about it, you're like, that would be great if it was true. But you hold back and you have your doubts that it's true, that it tastes like wasabi. It tastes a lot like wasabi. It is not the same as real wasabi. It, it, I've had true wasabi, and I've had green-colored horseradish uh, that's you know sold as wasabi, and it doesn't taste like either one. It tastes a lot like wasabi. It is nose-opening. It is like wasabi in that you get the heat, and it goes away. It's not like eating a habanero where two hours later you're still eating napkins and drinking milk, trying to get the pain out of your face. It hits you, and it's gone, and I love that. That's what I like about wasabi or wasabi arugula and things like that. It is a beautiful plant. Again, I think this is a plant, if you're in the right place, this is a chef's plant. This is something that chefs would like to have. It is quick to grow. It is not quite as quick as growing a cherry bell radish, but about 10 more days, you have a mature plant. Graded, it would be, you know, if you were drinking a little sake along the way, you might even buy into it being actual wasabi. If you take this, though, there's a lot of ways you can play with it. If you'd like to do your own sashimi, a little sliver of this on the sashimi and then try this. Instead of wrapping the, the, the thing in, like, seaweed, and I know sashimi generally don't wrap it, but just try this. Take a little sliver of this, put it on something like a tuna or a salmon sashimi, and then wrap the plant, wrap that whole thing up in a nasturtium leaf. Yeah. It's pretty cool because now you've got the watercress style bite of the nasturtium and you've got the bite of the wasabi and the soft fatty fish with a little bit of soy sauce. It's, it's pretty freaking fantastic. Uh, again, I think this is a plant that could be sold to chefs and it's easy and simple to grow. I have not saved my own seed from it yet. I need to give that a shot. Uh, pretty much I've trialed it a couple times and liked it and liked it enough that I ended up eating it all. And then last but not least, I've been talking about these forever. And this is this place, Urban Farmer, I've done business with before. Uh, they sell sweet potato slips and they sell them from various, you know, like a ton of different varieties. The Murasaki's Purple Sweet Potato Slips. Now, if you're not watching the video and you're listening to the audio on this, it's important that if you're going to get Japanese Purple Sweet Potato, I don't care if it's a different name for them. What I care is that you know what you're looking for in this particular potato. So for those of you that are looking at the screen, you can see that it's a purple reddish skin. Sometimes they're called purple. Sometimes they're called red. They're the same freaking potato. Sometimes they're called Murasaki. Sometimes they're called Osaka. There's a bunch of different names. It's the same freaking sweet potato. But the, the inside is actually a yellowish white color. It's not a purple potato all the way through. It's only the reddish purple skins. These are incredibly thin skin. If you, if when you, when you harvest these, it's best to just knock the dirt off with your hands and don't wash them until you're going to use them. And then when you wash them to use them, rinse them with your hands. If you scrub them in any way, you will literally scrub the skin off. It is that thin. The taste of this is not your typical sweet potato. It is. It, if you just roast this, it tastes like 
almost like a, like a conventional potato, not a sweet potato, with a little bit of butter on it. It has a butter flavor, like a light butter flavor to it without even putting any butter on it. We don't eat a lot of potatoes. We don't eat a lot of starch. I grow these every year, and every winter we take a few, and we cut them up, and we do a twice-fried sweet potato fry with them, and they are freaking amazing, and they are totally worth the carbs for that day. To have them a few times a year is a, just a fantastic treat. Twice frying is what makes them like little pillows inside. They're crunchy on the outside, pillow on the outside. I have never peeled one. I see no need to with that thin skin. The skin's delicious anyway. I grow them mostly for the greens, and we eat the greens all year, and we feed the greens all year to the birds. Uh, I will tuck them anywhere that I can and let them sprawl out, and they become a living mulch. You do have to watch them because they'll crawl up and eat your other plants, though, so you have to keep an eye on that. Um, but they're just fantastic. I grow them in aquaponic systems as well, and they go crazy. They don't produce a lot of tubers that way, but with greens. And I will cut you know, half of a wheelbarrow and dump them for the ducks, and the ducks will just eat the crap out of them. If you're going to eat sweet potato greens, the leaves are good, the stems are not. So you strip the leaves off and you use them like spinach. And this has been one of my go-tos. And all you got to do is save one or two every year and make new slips with. And so you, you know, the slips are kind of expensive, 25 slips for 18 bucks plus shipping uh, on this particular site. But if you keep a few potatoes every year, you'll never have to buy them again. I sell these sometimes. I don't know if I will this year because I'm behind this year. But I will sell these a lot of times just like on next door or something. And I'll sell 10 slips for $10 and people will buy them because there's nowhere. I mean, other than ordering them online, there's just nowhere around here to get them. And I make slips. I just, I just cut off growth from the plants themselves, strip the leaves off and I stick them in my air stacks and my aquatic systems. And they root really, really fast. They're really easy. When you order these things, I don't care who you order them from. Sweet potato slips will look like dog crap when you get them. What, do not plant them when you get them. They don't like the shipping that they go through. Put them in water. Put them where they get some ambient light, but not direct light. Let them come kind of back around, fill out a little bit more roots, start to look happy. Then when you plant them, give them shade for a couple of days. Wherever the primary sun hits them, take a bucket and sit it there so the bucket gives them a shadow. My favorite way to harden plants off in the soil when they're getting beat with sun, they make it's they're about four inches square um, aquatic plant pot, and they're just full of holes. So they end up letting about half the sunlight in. It's like a little mini shade cloth bucket. You just turn it upside down and sit it over there. Let it sit for a couple of days, and then you know like go out after two or three days of that. Go out, take it off, set a timer, do it on a weekend if you have a, a day job and you're not at home, and let them have like four hours of full sun and then go cover them again. Do that for a couple of days, and then by that point, when they start to grow, it's on. They are honey badgers. They're just a little finicky to get into the ground, so that's kind of to get you through that right there. Anyway, with that, hope you guys enjoyed the show, the show today. Again, I want to encourage you in the end – do, do three things with picking your plants. Grow what does well for you. Because it does well for me doesn't mean it will do well for you. It, it, I mean, as bad as it is here, it probably will. But if you're like, I like to grow this other shit and it does really well for me, then grow what does well for you. Next up, grow what you like. 
right? Grow what you like to eat, what, what, what your family consumes. It doesn't make any sense to grow something because you can grow a lot of it if it ends up going to waste. If it's animal feed, fine. But if it's animal feed only because no one will eat it, stop growing that, right? Grow something that you like and grow what is easiest for you. Not just that it does well, but it's easiest for you. And what I mean by that isn't just like you don't have to do a lot of things to get it to grow, but that like your lifestyle fits this thing. So I grow all indeterminate tomatoes, right? And indeterminate tomatoes just keep growing and growing and growing and more and more tomatoes and indeterminate tomatoes produce throughout the whole season, right? You get full of fruit, you pick it, you get more and you get more and you get more and some's ripe and some's not at the same time. I like that. I like the continuous harvest. If you are a person that does a lot of making tomato canned tomatoes, and that's the main reason you grow tomatoes, you might want to grow a determinant that like all the fruit gets ripe at the same time. So you have larger processing crops because that would be easiest for your lifestyle. So when I say easiest, I don't just mean ease of growth. Pick things that fit the way you like to garden. I like to spend my whole spring, summer and fall like like a like a monkey in the trees picking shit and eating it i like stuff that continuously produces i like stuff that i like to grow a lot of different things so that when some of my spring production starts to wane because they're plants that don't really love the heat like your peppers like i get good peppers up till midsummer and that's because there's a crop already set and then you know once you've kind of picked those there's not a lot of production through august and then you get your first cold night in September and those flowers come on. But the, the eggplant is still going bonkers. The beans that I grow are still going, especially the Asian beans, are still going bonkers during that period. The cucumbers are going bonkers. So I like to have a lot of different things so that I have something all season long. That fits my lifestyle. I'm home all the time. So stuff that needs a little bit of tweaking, like I manually pollinate my Trombacino squash. And that's so simple to do. But if, you, if you're if you not around a lot, maybe it's not as easy. I mean, all you do to do that is you find your female blossoms, and when they're ready to open, you take a male blossom, and you pull the thing, and you just touch the two parts together and get some pollen on there, and you get fruit set everywhere, right? So that works for me. That's easy for me. Do what's easiest for you. Easy, you like it. And it grows well and survives well in your climate. And you really can't go wrong. And then come up with some idea and plan of what to do with the surplus. Whether it's give it away, whether it's preserve it, what have you, whether it's feed it to your animals, feed it to your worms, whatever. And understand, like, if you have surplus that you really don't need right now, it's not a bad thing. Spread the addiction of gardening. Get as many people on board as you can. The more food production we have locally, the more stable we are. I did a show earlier this year. Uh, I did a talk uh, down in, in Bastrop with the same title. Food security is the first security. If you, if you go to a place in the world where you don't feel safe walking around, I promise you they also lack food security. And, and honestly, in most places, even in nations that have food security, the location is going to be what they call food deserts. When, when people know they're going to eat every day, their whole life, and they know they can feed their children, it doesn't make all the problems just go away, but it reduces the propensity for criminal activity and problems. Because how many of you 
wouldn't kill somebody if you had to so that your kid didn't die. We all like to think, well, I would never aggress on anybody or whatever unless they were aggressing on me. But when you're looking at a starving child, things change. And when you're worried that the kid could start, even if it never happens, then the propensity for violence and problems goes up. So get that food security in place. And then if something goes wrong and you already have this surplus, maybe the surplus just becomes what's adequate. So already having the space prepared, already having the stuff being grown. And you can always like have this really diverse garden and lots of things that aren't that productive, but you have that productivity in place. And if you, we, we transition into a world where we need to grow more of our own food, then we just change what we're planning. Yeah. So again, I hope you enjoyed this show. And I, I'm going to tell you, I was saying about being a kind of a garden evangelist. There is nothing that makes a person who doesn't have a garden want a garden more than visiting your garden, having you reach down and pull like a sun, sun warmed sweet pepper off of a plant, breaking it, eating the other half so they know they really can't eat it. Because there's people, they will freak out that you're going to eat something straight off a plant without washing it. Well, there's no reason I have to wash it. It's not dirty. If it was covered in dirt, then I'd rinse it off. Hand them the other piece of it and watch what happens when they take a bite into it, assuming they like peppers. If not, give them a tomato. Give them, you know, a, a raw green bean. It's shocking the way people respond to it. Or a piece of, like, cutting celery. Intense celery flavor. Early in the year, some arugula out of the garden. Seconds from being picked to eaten. And you know what they say? How do you do this? Now you have permission. Is it really evangelism if you're asked first? I don't know that it is anymore. And that means it's we learn this in sales, right? I did a lot of my life in the world of sales. The key to converting someone from prospect to customer is to get them to ask you questions. And it doesn't matter if the questions at first are adversarial or if they're what you call buying questions. They're both good. As long as I get you asking I get permission to answer. And then you're usually when somebody asks a question, they usually do pay attention to the answer. So when somebody says, well, how do you do this? Well, how much space do you have? Right. OK, so what I would recommend is just start off with something easy, one or two, four by eight garden beds. Here's how you build them. Look, here's how I did it. Right. And here's like here's what I would grow your first season. Easy stuff. You know, peppers, beans, tomatoes, cucumbers, stuff like that. Yeah. Get them started. Because every time we do that, our security and our safety long term in our communities goes up. And it's it's, you know, Jeff Lawton said all the world's problems can be solved in a garden. I know that sounds so ridiculous. When you think about all the problems in the world and you go, I don't know how. All those problems can be solved in a garden. I think anything that mitigates a problem is a step in solving it. And I can't think of a problem that having greater food security and all of the things that happens to a community as it builds food security and it builds self-reliance and it builds the community around that, that wouldn't at least be mitigated. There wouldn't be a little bit better for having it with that guys. I hope you enjoyed it uh, real quick. If you like the show and you want to support us, there's a lot of ways you can do that. You can always send me super chats right here on YouTube if you're watching that. 
value for value through a podcasting 2.0 app like Fountain. I am on Noster. If you're on Noster, my pub key is right down there in the video notes where it'll be in the episode notes for every episode going forward. I've got it into the uh, boilerplate uh, stuff for episodes. You can come over there and you can zap value if you want to do that. Uh, you can join the member support brigade. If you do that, you help support the show and the work that we do. No matter what you, uh, you, you the, no, I'm sorry, you help support the show and the work that we do. I was jumping ahead there uh, by getting a membership and then using the discounts to get your money back. Last but not least, a uh, simple way is do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Um, today's item of the day is the same one as yesterday. This is a product I really recommend that you add to your gardening efforts this year. It's uh, Dynomyco Premium Mycorrhizal Inoculant. And I talked about it yesterday, so I won't talk about it much today other than to say it's the best uh, mycorrhizal inoculant that I've found. And I've trialed a bunch of them. A lot of these companies, I feel like they lie about the quantity of the uh, fungal bacteria, uh, the fungal, uh, the fungi that are in the product. This has worked better for me than anything else I've tried since the last product I had was discontinued a couple of years ago. It is in these little encapsulated beads. And what that does is it actually protects the, the fungi from being exposed to light and air. And that means that they stay inert and, and, and active longer because when they get activated by moisture uh, in the soil, you want to put this right where the roots are. This isn't something you want to sprinkle on the top like a fertilizer down in the hole when you put the plant in, if you're doing a transplant. I actually, when I plant seeds in uh, started seeds, I put little dents in there and I put a sprinkle of this stuff, about a quarter teaspoon in every hole, and then I plant my seeds right in there. So when that seed germinates, those roots are immediately in contact with that fungal hyphae. And I should probably do a show someday just on mycorrhizal activity in the soil and how it benefits plants because it's like having a second root system and it makes the roots more robust and more strong and the mycorrhizal fungi need the plants and the plants need the mycorrhizal fungi. And uh, this is just the best product I've found for it. And I have done side-by-side trials uh, with several different products, even ones that I'm not as enamored with. And the difference is still night and day. The overall growth rate is just better uh, so check that product out. But again, if you uh, if you want to help us out, no matter what you buy, you're probably going to buy something online today, tomorrow, next week. T-SPAS, T-S-P-A-Z, T-SPAS.com. Find all my reviews there. But even if you just start there, you help us out. With that, I'll be back tomorrow. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. So you know what that means. Expert Council Q&A show of the week. Uh, Ron Whitehurst, who I had on yesterday about biological pest control methodology, has asked me on the expert panel. I have given him an okay to audition. So I should have next week uh, an audition segment for him to play for the audience. But if you have questions you would like to ask Ron uh, for an expert counsel Q&A show, that we'll see if we have enough interest in that, that topic uh, to give him a couple questions a month. I would love to have him. He's a wealth of knowledge and information, and I'd love to have him on for that. So he or any of the expert council members, remember, send the email jack at the survival podcast.com, TSPC expert in the subject line. Tell me who your question's for. Give me your question in one sentence. 
hit the return key a couple times, and then give me details. That'll be more likely to get on the air if you do that. I have a great lineup of stuff for you tomorrow. You'll be hearing from uh, the Ron Paul guys with the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights. Dr. Ken Berry, Doc Bones will be on tomorrow. I think I've got a segment from Nicole Sauce and some few others. So we're going to have a great show tomorrow. Real quick here at the end, uh, Anarchy has uh, sent me a $5.55 super chat. Thanks, dude. I really appreciate uh, that when people do that. With that, I will catch you guys tomorrow with another episode. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? You should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.